0: We're on the Zechariah series, and we're at the second last chapter, Zechariah 13. It's a powerful chapter. It's a chapter that talks about what God is going to do for Israel, but it is reflective of what God is doing in our lives right now, in our lives in this season. But even as Pastor Lechu raised that word of the Lord and brought that out, I believe this is what God is going to do Today. It's part of the entire process of what we call refining. And refining isn't very nice. It isn't very fun. It isn't very exciting. It can be painful. It can be troublesome. It can be heartbreaking. But that is what God does in our lives. God allows us but even brings us through that refining process. And so I'm going to start off not by the, 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 the order of Zechariah 13, and I'm going to start off with the end of Zechariah 13 as the beginning. So slides, I'm sorry. Thank you very much for flowing with me. Zechariah 13 is part of an entire three-chapter series, and, and I must say this, as every pastor who does 12, 13, and 14 will, it is one entire letter, one entire oracle of the Lord. So in that sense, there are no chapters, there are no verses, but at this particular part of the entire oracle, God says God says this in Zechariah 13 verse 9, the second half, they will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. That's precisely what we sing about and the point of why we sing those songs where we say, we love you, Jesus. Because God has called us to be what what the Bible tells us as a covenant people. A covenant people where the primary declaration is that they will be my people, God says, and I will be their God. And where do we see this? Throughout Scripture. Every time God declares His covenant with Israel, He says, they will be my people and I will be their God. We sing it in different ways. The scripture looks at it in different ways. But the same phrase, the same concept exists all the time. He is mine and I am his in Song of Solomons. They will be my people. I will be their God. What is that covenant relationship made of? Love. If it were not for the grace of God, we would not experience this love. But God in His grace and mercy comes to us and says, I love you. I love you so much that I would give up my life for you. I love you so much. When He told Abraham and He told Israel in the wilderness, He says, I love you so much. I will take care of you. I will take care of you. I will build you into a nation that would say, the Lord is my God and you will always be my people. Who initiated it? God. It wasn't the Israelites, for sure. They wanted to do their own thing. They wanted to live their own life. Who called Abraham? God. Who calls us today? God. God, in all of His grace, initiated all that we see in the build-up of this relationship known as the covenant. And in all its different iterations and and the way it looks like, how Scripture reveals it to us, it was always God who started it first. And so I'm going to start from that end and go right to the front of Zechariah, and perhaps hopefully for the benefit of all of us here, there will be some flow. But the first thing we see in Zechariah 13 is actually a follow-through from Zechariah 12. It's a single line in Zechariah 13, verse 1, that says, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will, sorry, on that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And that's the last line of a series of verses where God is talking about how he will save the Jews. And so, picking on from What Pastor Chu did last week with the three S's, the siege of Jerusalem, the the shielding of Israel, and now the salvation of the Jews, I want to point out something that I thought was really interesting in Zechariah 12, which will then lead on to Zechariah 13, verse 1. Five years ago in E16, we heard one one of these speakers talk about something that blew my mind, and the phrase that he used was, the genius is in the order. The genius is in the order. For those of you at E16, I noticed you because you nod your head so wildly. Right? Like, yes, yes, I remember that pastor. He, he said that, right? Because it, it blew my mind and I think it, it really made an impact on a lot of us. And so I looked at Zechariah 12 and here's what I noticed. The Lord pours out a spirit of grace and supplication or grace and pleas of mercy, depending on the version that you use. And here's the thing. Grace always comes first, not supplication. Grace always comes first. Like I said, when God created or initiated that covenant, He started off with it first. He initiated it, and He did not have to do it. But He did it out of His grace and His love for us. One of the the things that recently happened in my life that uh, God has used in my life to show me what this uh, really means is this. You see, the idea of grace is very interesting. And the reason why it is interesting is because in, in, in Scripture and in our Christian walk, if there was no grace, we would not have realized that we needed grace. So there would have been no need for supplication if you did not experience the grace. Why would I plead for mercy or repent and mourn? And and in Scripture, in Zechariah 12, it's so loud, it was like the morning of uh, Rimon at Megiddo. It was was loud mourning, it was wailing, you know. Why would I have to do all of that if I didn't have to? If I did not experience the grace? Because grace, grace tells us where we were at before grace came. Let me explain. Two weeks ago, so this is what happened in my life. Two weeks ago, a neighbor uh, gave us an Apple TV smart box. All right? Praise God. Free, right? You give me free. All right, The only thing is that Apple TV smart box is six years old. It was one of those things that, you know, empty the storeroom and then you find, hey, anybody want not? I said, I take lah. All right, how many of you have an Apple TV smart box, doesn't matter, six, all right? Uh, yes, some of you know, okay, so some of you may know what I'm talking about. I shared this in LifeGen. By the way, greetings from LifeGen, that's the church plant of SIBKL that I serve in. Uh, so I don't see all of you very often, but we wish you and, and, and honor you and, and honor this church and, and really wish you all our greatest greetings. Um, and if you stay on in this hall, uh, because, you know, you feel like, you know, you want to stay on, we meet here at 4 p.m. Uh, for our LifeGen service. So I will be back today. <laughs> Anyway, so I shared this with LiveGen, nobody raised their hands, you know, like, either everybody is not an Apple TV user or they're all Android, right? Uh, But uh, so some of you raised your hands, you know what I'm talking about. So I I got this Apple TV smart box, and I've never used a smart box in my life. Every time I played something, uh, it was either from a DVD player or, you know, direct from my... I connect my computer to the TV. So I've never used an Apple TV Smart Box before. But if you have one, you will notice this. The Apple TV Smart Box has no buttons. It has no home button, it has no dial, it has no anything to turn on the thing. The moment it turns on, the moment I plug plug it in and then turn on the, the switch. And then power goes into the Smart Box and then I see this little white light. So the only thing that tells me the Smart Box is working is this little white light. That says hi, I'm here. And so I, I, I look, I'm looking for a button, and I'm like, I can't turn this on. I can connect the HDMI cable to the TV, and the TV uh, doesn't doesn't really, you know, show me anything. And so I'm like, how do I turn this thing on? Like, how do I activate it? I know it has power, but how do I activate this? And for those of you who have bought an Apple TV Smart Box, you would have received, or you should have, uh, if not, go and ask for warranty, uh, a remote control, and. I did not get a remote control. So I just had the box and two wires. Power cable, HDMI cable, that's all. And so I was like, how am I supposed to use this? Like, thank you for the gift, but what am I gonna do with it? Uh, Most of you, I presume, use Android for your phones. But my phone is special. My phone has what we call an infrared blaster. How many of your phones have an infrared blaster? Okay, it really is special. I only see like three hands. Um, so you can, now, So if, if you feel that after sharing this, you, you, really, you really want a phone with an infrared blaster, just go and like, Google, all right? most likely you end up getting a Xiaomi phone all right, because they're the ones who I think still produce infrared blasters in their phones. But infrared blaster is really interesting. It basically means this. It turns your phone into a universal remote control. All right, I can control my TV, my DVD player, my aircon, my fan. Especially, you know, you can change the speed. And nowadays, you, you can use a remote control to change your fan speed. Um, do all of that while sitting on the couch. It basically couch potatoes you. All right, but it's cool, right? So I take this phone, and then I search on the IR blaster app, and and I notice, hey, I can change Smart Box. Okay, open up Smart Box, see what brands they are, and I notice Apple. And so I click Apple, I play, play, play with the smart box, and voila, it works. You know, I, I don't know about you, right? I like this kind of things, so right? You, you, you get an old stuff, and you try and use it, and then hopefully benefit from it for a while, but you had to find some work around to be able to use it. And so when I was able to get an Android phone to control an Apple smart box, I felt like a million bucks, like, I felt amazing, all right? And so, and so, yes, thank you very much. Some of you have applauded me. I, I appreciate it. Um, and it's, it's awesome. Uh, <laughs> and so, I, and so we, we had this little family chat group, and we were talking about this whole situation, and, you know, I got a TV smart box, and then I got no remote control, and then and all that, and then, I, I told, and then the news finally came out that I was able to use my phone to control the smart box, um, and then my wife said, my wife said, who's in control now? Apple or Android? And then I said, hello, me. I'm in control. <laughs> okay, that was... So then my brother said this. My brother said this. My brother is an Apple, iPhone, iPad, iMac user. So, you know, he's, he's sold out a lot, But he basically said this. He said, "You're in control, only because you've been given something to control." Apple gave you that opportunity to feel in control. Now, in that moment, while I'm celebrating my million-dollar worth, this is deep, man. <laughs> I'm like, "That's deep, bro. Why, why do you have to throw? Why do you? Why, why do you have to rain on my parade?" And you know pour cold water on my fire right now, you know? And then as I was preparing this message, God just kind of brought me to that, to that whole situation and, and then realized that's what sin looks like as well. The enemy is kind of like that. See, because if not for Jesus, we are slaves to sin. That's what Scripture tells us. We are powerless to overcome it. But if not for the grace of Jesus, we would have never seen it that way. We would have been blinded by it. Sin is sin because it makes us think that we are the ones in authority, in power, in control. We know best. We can make a name for ourselves and build a tower to the heavens. Sound familiar? Monument. That we are worthy of worship, that we are powerful and capable of anything we put our minds to, that we are God. And if we do that, we don't need God. That's what sin makes us think, that we live our best life. And if God had not shown us His grace, even in the Garden of Eden, we would have lived in blinded rebellion to God. Because we believe we are God. We would have been stuck in our sin. And the thing about sin is this, sin makes you think you're in control. But we're slaves to sin. You think you're the master of your own destiny. You think you're God. The reason why we are all here in this hall, if not all of us, is that at some point, God, in His grace, reached out to you, reached out to us, and showed us by His Spirit that we are sinful, that we are wretched, and that we need God. We need God's salvation. Sin gives you the illusion of success. God is a dose of reality. Think about that. Because of grace, we can now come before God with pleas of mercy and repentance. Only then can it lead to supplication. Only then can we say, Oh, God, this is is really who I am. I'm sorry. I need your mercy. I, will re- I want to repent. I want to turn away. Because if this is what I really look like, and thank you for your grace to show me that, I want to turn away. I don't want to live this life. I don't want to live this kind of life. I want to turn away and turn to you. And, and, and Zechariah 12 says, he, they looked on, the, on whom they have pierced. The grace of God reflected in the death of Jesus Christ is what leads us to repentance. It's what leads us to supplication. And so for a lot of you, when you've experienced the grace of God, that's what happened to you. You came before God, and and, and even till this day, as God's grace continues to show us where we are wrong, where, where He wants to work in our lives and deal with the sin in our lives, we come before God in repentance. We come before God in mourning and in weeping, and we say, God, forgive me. And as a church, we come together to repent before God as well. Now, solemn assemblies, even in your connect groups, and, and just like what Zechariah 12 describes, not just individuals or different ranks, but in families in clans coming together and saying, God, we repent, forgive us, have mercy on us. All of that because of the grace that came, and God showed that grace into our lives. The genius is in the order because after supplication comes cleansing. Zechariah 13.1 We know this because the grace of God convicts our hearts to repent and and, and shows us where we are wrong and then we come before God and we repent and because of that, we are cleansed. Romans 10.13 says, All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And all who repent and cry and, and, and call out to the, on the name of the Lord, the name that provides salvation, will be saved. In fact, when, when Paul in Romans ten 10.13 Romans quotes this phrase, it's actually a quote taken from Joel. Joel too, who is in, at that time prophesying in the last days. Prophesying today and in the days when God, when, when Jesus comes again, that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That means He's referring to us. He's referring to you and I who call on the name of the Lord, and the promise of God is that we will be saved. The same for Israel. God's grace, Israel's repentance and supplication and mourning, comes the cleansing. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Two things about this that I've noticed. First of all, it's a fountain. And a fountain is not, and I was in KLCC the other day, was water fountain and all that, right? That, that's not what we're talking about. A fountain is referred to as a spring, a source of water. And so it may not shoot up very high, and I know some do but it's usually a source of water. And, and if, if you've gone into the jungles and looked for springs, you will notice this. They're just still bubbling up springs on the ground. They don't, they don't magnify themselves, say, hello, I'm here. But it's just springs that come up from the ground. But the water, the water is fresh. The water is, is nice. How many of you have met a, have met a spring, have seen a spring, and then you put your cup and collect water from there? There you go, there you go, right? Who needs, who needs alkali water when you've got spring water, like real, fresh spring water? And that fountain leads to cleansing from sin and uncleanness. So the interesting thing about this particular fountain as well is this, it is a cleansing water. It's not just refreshing, it's not just, you know, uh, uh, healing it's a cleaning, cleansing water. In the mindset of Israel, this is not entirely new. By the time they read Zechariah, they understand that there is a certain kind of liquid that is used to cleanse spiritually. And you would see, for example, and i am just give you an example, Exodus 29, 21, on the consecration of Aaron and his sons as priests, that what they would do is they would lay their hands on a ram and then Moses, the first, the first person to ordain these priests, would cut or kill the ram, and some of the blood of that ram will be used to sprinkle on them. And that's what it says there in twenty nine twenty one. You sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments, and on his sons and his sons' garments, and then he and his garments shall be holy. They become set apart. And he and his, and his sons and his sons' garments with him. And so what that does, now obviously we're not saying go and wash yourself and you know the blood of the ram. That's not what it means. It says the sprinkling provides that understanding that you are cleansed by blood. By blood. We know today that the blood of bulls and rams are insufficient to cleanse us from our sin. I know Pastor Isaac sang a wonderful hymn yesterday. I, I cannot for the life of me and for the, to save this sermon... Sing. So I'm just going to say this. What can wash away my sin? You go. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood. This fountain flows from Zechariah 12 when he said, they look on him whom they have pierced, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from sin. The blood of Jesus is powerful to cleanse us from our sin and our uncleanness and restore us into holiness, righteousness before God. The first of the signs of God refining Israel is that He saves them. Zechariah 12 Verse 10 all the way to Zechariah 13, verse 1 is an entire process of God saying, I will save the Jews. Grace, supplication, and then cleansing. And He calls the Jews to Him. There are four things in Zechariah 13. And and just for the partly for the fun of it, I want to follow passage, use three S's. I'm going to go with four S's of what God does in Zechariah 13 to refine Israel. The first one, saved. He saved Israel. The second, he sanctified Israel. The third, he smelted Israel. And the fourth, he shepherds Israel. Israel is shepherded. So the first one, saved. We looked at it already, the grace, the supplication, the cleansing. He calls Israel to himself and he says, I have saved you for myself. I have saved you and, and, and you will you experience my grace, you will repent and I will cleanse you from your sin and uncleanness. That's the first thing he does, that is saved. The second one is this, he sanctifies Israel. And sanctification um, is reflected in this passage in verse two to six, and I'm just gonna read that for you. Zechariah thirteen two to six. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off, say cut off. All right, I'm going to cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And I will also remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother will bore, who bore him will say to him, you shall not live for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his, mother and his, sorry, and his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I am no prophet. I am a worker of the soil for a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, "Eh, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Salvation and sanctification are both important aspects of being made holy. Important aspects of God refining, not just Israel, but each and every one of us. Salvation and sanctification. You see this repeated over and over again. When Israel was saved, delivered from Egypt, they go through an entire 40 years to get the Egypt out of them. All of their, oh, I wish we had leeks back in Egypt. I wish we could have the food back in Egypt. I wish we could worship the same gods that they worship because, you know, apparently quite powerful, no? And God spent 40 years showing them, look, hello, I'm your God. I will, I will form a nation out of you, but this nation will follow certain laws and, 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 and criterias that are very different from the nations around you, but it is perfect and this will be my covenant with you. It took him 40 years to sanctify them. And then they go into the promised land, and so that's wonderful, but then they end up adopting the ways of the Canaanite nations around them. For example, idolatry, witchcraft, the concept of kingship, human kingship. What's worse is when the king goes to the medium, And so you both have kingship and witchcraft at the same time. And so all of these problems, God was wanting to rid them of. That was there was salvation, but that sanctification process, that that purifying process, took forever. And and as far as Israel is concerned, they, they really went downhill. But God wanted to do this. Israel returns from exile. And this is the season where we're talking about in the early part of Zechariah, right? So Israel returns from exile, but then they end up remaining in disobedience. Where do I find this? Nehemiah. You look at the reforms that Nehemiah had to do in Israel, and they were all addressing sins. For example, desecrating the temple. For example, intermarrying with idolatrous cultures. Israel left Egypt, idols. Idols. Israel goes into promised land, idols. Israel returns from exile, idols. Each and every one of our lives. Does that parallel with yours as well? Here's the big question I want to ask you. Because one of the great signs of the sanctifying work of God in our lives is when we are cut off from idolatry. Cut off from idolatry. You look at idols not just as, you know, in, in, uh, in, in Malay when they say certain religions got tempat berhala, right, and that's, that's, that's a literal big idol that they, they worship to and they, they honor and they knew all of that. We're not just talking about those kinds of idols. In fact, for, the most, for most of us, we don't deal with those idols, especially if you're a second generation Christian. But the idols in our lives don't just, are not just limited to these idols, The idols in our lives can include celebrity worship. It can include our work. It can even include our family. It can very well be our own lives. It can very well be our own lives. How do we know? You place your, whatever it is you place above God in your life, that's your idol. I heard this once, and I thought this was very interesting, and I thought maybe I'd share this with you. So I didn't create this, or I didn't know this was not first hand revelation for me, but this was someone who, who shared it. You know why God calls Israel, you stiff necked people? I, I used to joke about it if you wake up on the bed and you slept wrong, right? oh, I'm stiff necked today. But He calls Israel stiff necked. Of all the things you want to you know, describe Israel and their sin, why stiff necked? because they become the very person they worship. You worship an idol, you're stiff-necked. It's a description of the very person you worship. If you worship God and you sing that song, make me more like Jesus, you will become more like Jesus. If you worship idols, you worship yourself, you worship the the, the things around you that provide you your identity and your security in life, your priorities in life, you will become like them and not like God. Not like Jesus. And the description that God will have of you may not be stiff-necked, but it definitely isn't like Jesus. And that's what we want to become. That's what God has called us to be. Become more and more like Jesus. And so what God is doing is is, is cutting off Israel from its idolatry. What God is doing is cutting off Israel from all its effects of idolatry. For example, false prophets. False prophets, a spirit of impurity that comes with it, all of that He's cutting off. And And it's a very drastic kind of example or analogy he's giving because it it would even look like this. When the father and mother loves God so much and honours God and worships God and then sees their son false prophesying, they will say, you speaking lies, stop. And then it says, stab or pierce for his falsehood, for his sin, for going against God. That means sanctifying an entire nation, an entire family, an entire people from any element that goes against God. False prophets, a spirit of impurity, idolatry. It sounds very drastic, but hey, if God is going to raise a covenant people, a people whose hearts are sold out for God and God alone, a people whose hearts are going to move with God and participate with God and place God as priority, top priority, in, in every aspect of their lives. This is what it calls for. If you want to make it sound as drastic as well in the New Testament, can. Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, Now, obviously it doesn't say take a knife in. I mean it doesn't mean take a knife and cut it off, but he says this is how you get rid of your sin. This is how you cut yourself away from that sin. This is how you, you, you eradicate sin in your life. You don't dabble with it. You cut yourself off from it in every way and in every aspect of your life. God not just saves Israel, He sanctifies Israel. And this is what Israel will look like when they're sanctified. Idolatry is gone and the effects of idolatry are also eradicated so that He creates a pure people. My question to you is this. Have you dealt with your idols have you dealt with your idols? There's a, there's a story of King, I think it was King Jehoshaphat and Ahab who were coming together and they were saying, look, um, shall we attack this Canaanite nation that is coming against us? And then Jehoshaphat says to Ahab, don't we have the prophets of the Lord to come and share and, and say things? And, and so he says, yeah, go, 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 come. So he brings his bunch of fellas. And then they all prophesy, and and, and, and some of them were really drastic analogies, you know, with with, with this horn, you will crush the enemy and all that kind of thing. And, And then Jehoshaphat makes a very interesting observation. He says, isn't there anyone here who is a prophet of the Lord? Now, Ahab is steep in his idolatry. And either he knows that these are not prophets of the Lord or he's blinded to the fact that these are prophets of the Lord. But Jehoshaphat was able to identify and say, wait, hold up. Is there any here who is a prophet of the Lord? And then Ahab then says, well, this is one other guy. But he never says anything good to me, for me, about me. This guy comes and then says the very thing that says, destruction will come upon you if you attack this nation. They don't believe in it. Ahab goes, Ahab dies. But the point about this is that where there is idolatry, it seeps into the very things that we are a part of. It seeps into our very lives. It's not just an item there that sometimes you look at, sometimes you don't, and then you go back to holiness. No. It seeps into your prophecies, It seeps into the way you do things. It seeps into your mindsets and your paradigms. And so what God is doing in Israel and what God is doing in our lives now is saying, if you take off idolatry, we're going to take off everything that comes with it. Has anyone ever tried uprooting a tree? You don't just cut off the tree. You uproot the entire tree and so everything comes out. Every root, every aspect of that root. And sometimes you you dig a a hole so massive to get around the roots and under the roots so that the whole thing comes up. Because that's what God is doing when He sanctifies us. Every aspect that has now seeped into every part of your life, every aspect of idolatry that has seeped into every part of your life, I'm going to uproot it. Sanctify. Have you dealt with your idols? Third one, He smelts. He smelts Israel. Not smell Israel, not melt Israel. He smelts Israel. Smelting is a refining process for precious metals, like gold, like silver. What it does is it uses intense heat, and this is the part of chemistry that I remembered a bit, you know, this reducing agent that allows the ore and the other impurities inside that metal to dissolve and to go away so that what flows out eventually is pure metal, is pure gold, is pure silver. And so this is what it says in Zechariah 13, 7-9. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones in the whole land, declares the Lord. Two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. In yesterday's message, Pastor Isaac described what really takes place when the shepherd is struck, and the shepherd refers to Jesus Christ, when the shepherd is struck. And there's fulfillment of prophecy as well, which Jesus says will be fulfilled, just before he fulfills it, all right? And so, watch that message. You see the parallels uh, in the different passages. And so, you strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered, and the one-third that shall be left alive, the one-third that remain are the remnants, the people who will look to God and say, I will follow you. But this one-third who declares, I will follow you, and I hope that that is all of us today, will be refined as gold and as silver, What does that mean? We get smelted. We go through a refining process so that every part that is not of God, every impurity, every uncleanness gets burned away, gets dissolved and goes away. And it's a powerful analogy. The only question is, what does it look like in my life? What does it look like in my life? First of all, it can be very painful. It can be very troublesome. You want to look at a person who was tested as silver or tested as gold. Look at Job. And the things that he went through and the pain that he suffered, and yet he stood firm. I don't want to, you know, um, look at Job very shallowly and so I, I'm not going to go through an entire uh, series on Job, but this was one of the things that God brought me through in terms of learning, in terms of reading and understanding, the kind of things that Job went through and how Job held on to God. And it was not easy. I'm not saying that all of us will go through the exact same scenarios that Job did, but God brings us through a refining process in our lives, a refining process that will bring us through difficult times and trouble, troubled times and, and times where we, where we really are tested as to who is our number one priority. Who do we look out for as number one? Who do we see as the the one thing or the one person or the one principle or the one belief that we will hold up to in those difficult times? The idea is that it would be God. And the assurance is that God will be with you so that you will see God. But refining, as painful as it is, is a good thing. It's a good thing in our lives. You know, we like things when, it, when it's refined, right? Like, for example, you want pure gold on your jewelry, right? Oh, this is my gold ring. It's uh, 50% gold. Come on. You want the, 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 the pure gold. You want to hold something and say, this is pure gold. This is worth Something, right? You want your car oiler uh, to be clean, filtered, and then every you know regularly changed. Because you want it to be working perfectly. You want your honey to be unadulterated. Anybody go and buy a bottle of honey and then go and say, hey, see, why got this little speck here, this little ant on the on the honey box? I don't want. It. Ask for a refund. You want your honey to be unadulterated. You want your drinking water to be clean, potable water. And even if you get clean, potable water, you still want to filter it and then boil it and make sure that every impurity is removed. You want your air purifier to remove all the bacteria and the germs and the viruses in in, in the air. And if your air purifier cannot guarantee you that it will remove all of these bacteria, it will at least tell you it's 99.99%. Because that's what you want. You want refined air, you want pure air, you want pure gold, you want your, your, your car oil to be clean, you want pure drinking water so that you live, so that you enjoy life, so that you are able to move on. But all of that requires refining. And God wants a people for himself who are unadulterated by the world. Unadulterated. He longs for people who have turned their eyes away from the things of this world. In fact, even the lies that tell them that security and identity come from the things of this world, the things that the world can offer, a great salary, a good family, fame, friends, all of that, that's your identity. That's a lie. And God's saying, don't look to those things. Look to me as your number one, as your security, as your identity, because I am the author and the perfecter of your faith. He's looking for people who do what we call seek His kingdom and His righteousness first. I'm going to say something that I hope will come up properly. So please don't get me wrong. When I read seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and this morning I saw someone post on Instagram something that really troubled me and bothered me and, and so even as I was preparing for today I, I realized I needed to say this. Um, and it I think Pali moves in, in, into what God has for us in terms of a movement and a monument. And it's this term self-love. Self-love. I don't know if you've heard of this before, but I, I, I've been hearing about this uh, uh, for a while now. Uh, and I, I see some of this, you know, advertisements about I'm sorry, it's not advertisements but more like infotainment uh, stuff about this, flyers about it, and, and people who talk about this idea of self-love. So please don't get me wrong. I think there is a place and a need for us to rest, to be happy, to 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 look at you know how we can remain healthy and and, and, and all of that. And that is a good thing. But the reason why I'm very concerned about this growing trend of what we call self-love, is the principle behind it. It's the principle behind what self-love projects. If you love yourself, everything will fall into place. That was the quote I saw this morning. If you love yourself, everything will fall into place. And the picture on that Instagram caption was a guy who was in a hotel, I think it was a hotel, but, you know, chilling. If you love yourself, take a break. Everything will fall into place. If you love yourself, you will love other people better. If you love yourself, you will love other people better. Point being this. If you place yourself as the number one priority, you'll have a fulfilling life. If you place yourself as the number one priority, you will have... A fulfilling life. You are your own idol. That's not how God sees it. God says the fulfilled life is the life that follows Jesus. It's the life that places Him as priority. It's a life that walks in the destiny marked out for God. Sorry, marked out by God, for Him. And so the first and foremost thing is to seek God and His righteousness and then trust that God has His best interests at heart. It believes that the purpose of his life is defined by God, not by what makes him feel happy and fulfilled. See, if the early church believed in self-love, none of them would have gone out of their way to share the gospel. None of them would have gone out of their way to go to prison, get beaten and flogged, lose their loved ones to the sword, give up their money and homes for others, and many more, such that you and I get to experience the power and the love of God 2,000 years later. God is refining us. He's challenging us and our paradigms and our beliefs and clearing out the wrong ones and filling it with truth. So he will cut off idolatry. He will smelt us, and in that refining process, show us what our number one priority should be. The guys at the Tower of Babel, they saw themselves as number one priority. Otherwise, why would we make a name for ourselves with a building that reaches the heavens? A monument. But a a church that follows Jesus moves with Jesus and is a movement with God wherever God takes the church. And people who join with God, move with God as part of that movement wherever God takes them. God is refining us. and The fire that we face clears us from sin, from mismatched thoughts. It frees us to live fulfilled lives. And the one beautiful thing about that is this. The person who refines, the person who smelts, the person who puts this gold or this silver in the fire looks at that gold and says, I can make this pure gold. I can refine it so that it is pure gold. He didn't just drop a bunch of gold bars or gold pieces with ore into the thing and just let it go and just, you know, do his own thing. He was actively involved in making sure it comes out pure gold. That's who God is. God looks at Israel, God looks at the church and He says, I will bring them through the fire but the words are, I will bring them and I will be with them and I will make sure that when I pull them out, they look like real gold. That they are pure. That they are what I look to or what I look for as my covenant people. This people will call me their God and I will call them my people. The end result of all that saving, of all that sanctifying, of all that smelting is then you have the covenant. God shepherds Israel. God says, after all of the sanctifying work that I'm doing in your life and I'm doing in the life of this nation, I, you will be shepherded. You will say to me that I am your God and I will say to you that you are my people. I will say to you that you are my people. And so, the the signs of a refined Israel, saved, sanctified, smelted, shepherded. But I'm not Israel. I'm a Gentile. I'm Chinese. I'm Malaysian. What does this have to do with me? I think every person who has preached on this stage on Zechariah faces this question as much as any one of us. What does God talking about Israel have to do with us? It is this. What God will do for Israel, God is already doing in us. I don't have time to go through this with you, but Romans 11 verse 25 to 36, essentially talks about this, that while God will redeem and save Israel, there is a partial hardening until the fullness of the Gentiles come into the kingdom. That means you and I and the rest of the world, all whom God has called, have come into the kingdom, and then God goes for Israel. There is a mystery about it. And that's why Paul in in Romans says, this is a mystery. And who can question the mind of the Lord? Because for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. And so he praises God at the end of describing this mystery and says, I don't know why God does this, but God is wise and God is awesome and God has His own ways and His plans and His thoughts and I will worship Him for that. But here's the thing right now, you Gentiles. If this is the plan, you are part of the process. If this is the plan, you are part of the process. And so what God will do for Israel, God is already doing in your lives. God is already going to save you. God will continue to sanctify you. God will continue to refine you, to smelt you. And the end result is that we call upon God and we say, God, I love you. You are my God. You are my number one. And God looks at us and goes, hey, My people, my people, the people whose grace I have poured out, the people whose love I have shown, the people for whom I have been pierced for, the people whom I've saved, the people who I've sanctified and I've refined, my covenant people, my covenant people. So as Gentiles, what do we do? How shall we live? Three things. And I'm going to deviate from the S, I'm going to the F. First one fear God. That's what Paul says in Romans 11. Don't think that by your merit God saved you, it was by the mercy of God. So don't boast. Fear God. Fear God who showed us his grace and mercy fear God who decided that he would call